Well, good morning. Matthew 24. That's where we'll be. We're going to look at uh, the next paragraph. It's going to be 15 to 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank You so much for who You are, uh, that You've spoken to us in, in Your Word, in the Scriptures, and we just say thank You for that. Would You teach us today? I ask that You would give us wisdom, insight, and understanding like Daniel had, and that You would help us to understand this passage and what it has to say to us. God, would you warn us? Would you encourage us? In Jesus' name, amen. So in case you didn't hear about it this last week, and just in time for our series titled The End on Matthew 24 and 25, one Christian numerologist believes that the rapture will occur on April 23rd. So mark your calendars. An article on foxnews.com reports the following, and I just happened to see this this week. This wasn't a planned thing. Is the rapture finally here? One Christian numerologist says a biblical sign strongly suggests it. David Mead tells the UK's Daily Express newspaper that on April 23rd, the sun and moon will be in Virgo, as will Jupiter, which represents the Messiah. For a certain branch of evangelical Christianity, Revelation 12, 1-2 describes the beginning of what is known as the rapture and the second coming of Christ. The passage reads, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. In the passage, the woman is represented as Virgo. According to me, the alignment represents the lion of the tribe of Judah, marking the rapture, the belief that Christ will bring the faithful into paradise prior to a period of tribulation on earth that precedes the end of time. 
Mead said he believes the so-called planet X, which is also known as Nibiru, will appear above the sky on the April date, causing volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, and earthquakes. NASA repeatedly has said Planet X is a hoax. End quote. So as pastors of Roto Christian Fellowship, we're hoping that you don't fall for that kind of nonsense. Jesus may arrive on April 23rd. He may decide to do that. But it will have nothing to do with David Mead and his interpretation. This is simply a fresh reminder, I think, of how popular the apocalypse and eschatology is. Remember, that's that big word, eschatology, which is the study of the last things. And it's still very popular in our current culture. One of the reasons why I like using that term isn't just to be fancy. It doesn't have to do with that. It's because if I use the term in times, it automatically alerts to a certain framework of thinking about the return of Jesus that I think is unhelpful. As we talked about last week, eschatology has begun now. We aren't looking for signs that will begin the end times. We are currently already in the end times. And then why? Why is that? Not because of any current or future date in Israel or the possibility of a final single Antichrist figure being alive now or in the future, but because of a past event in Israel that already happened. Jesus is alive. That's why we are in the end times. His life, death, and resurrection and ascension launched the beginning of the end. Since Jesus is alive, since He has risen from the dead, new creation has already started in motion. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is coming. It was present in His ministry. And the first fruits of the resurrection has already started. He's alive. Therefore, we too who trust Him will be alive when the present age completely gives way to the future age. God in Christ has already forgiven sin. He has already disarmed the devil. He has already defeated death. And one day, in fullness, He will completely eradicate all of that. Until then, sinners and saints still sin. The world is still subjected to the curse. The devil is yet to be tossed into the lake of fire and death is yet to be completely destroyed. But, as of now, there's an overlap between the ages. And I don't know... Oh, there it is. Look at that. Last week, we talked about this little chart um, that I kind of did with my pencil. Uh, you'll notice too... I just want to make this clear. This was modified from somebody else's chart. There's a, there's a little tiny book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. It's a really helpful book on this, though I actually um, have some different interpretations. Um, but I kind of modified the chart. So we had just talked about to kind of give us a big picture view, um, the way in which the Bible affirms the idea of two ages. There's a present age and then there's the age to come. So at the very beginning, you have creation. Then where that X is, you have the fall, Adam's fall. And right now, in between, or excuse me, between all of that time, from that point to the very last point is this present age. Okay, here's this thing. So during this period, you have Adam and Israel going on. Adam obviously here, Israel all through here in the present age. And then the cross 
Jesus comes. So Jesus comes to earth. The kingdom begins. The presence of the kingdom already starts. So this whole period between Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming is this part where the already and not yet of the kingdom has already begun, which is the whole period of the end times. Rather than the end times just being a little tiny period that starts here right before the end. That everything is, is currently in the end times, which is why throughout the Bible we talked about it last week, how there's the sense of the last hour of being right now. Antichrist has already come, is what First John says. And the Antichrist will continue to come. So you have D-Day, where sin is forgiven, devil disarmed, death dies. Um, where the victory has essentially been won, but V-Day, when death is truly finally destroyed at Jesus' second coming. So you have this overlap of the ages where the blessings of the kingdom are already present right now. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth when the present age is no longer completely, but the age to come in its fullness. Um, The cross and resurrection ascension and Final judgment are kind of viewed in an overlapping way where God has already come. Jesus is already king and he was, is and is to come. So that's just kind of what I'm working with uh, to give us a little bit of a picture of this idea of two ages, just as a review. But it's important that that chart or any other chart ultimately doesn't matter. Like we've talked about, it's what the word of God says and And I am extremely fallible, obviously, and so is everybody else um, who interprets um, the Bible. We do so to the best of our ability and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, We as a church uh, really just want to remind us that interpretations on this issue we hold with a very open hand. And so we're mostly committed to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus, not the sequence of events that are approaching and surrounding his return. So whether or not you believe in a secret rapture before the second coming, or if you don't believe it, or whether you are mid-trib, post-trib, or whatever, or whether you believe that there's going to be events in Israel that are central to the second coming, whether you believe in a literal millennium or not, we hold all those things in an open hand. Our statement of faith, if you remember that whole series we went through, we intentionally don't cover any of those things. It actually says on the section of the last things, it says, we believe that the kingdom of God came in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it continues to expand by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church, and that it will be consummated in the glorious, visible, and triumphant appearing of Christ when he returns to the earth as king. We believe that after Christ returns, he will bring the ultimate defeat of Satan, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the eternal blessing of the righteous. At that time, the kingdom of God will be completely fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and in which we will be worshipped, excuse me, he will be worshipped forever. And then we have a parenthesis with a bunch of scripture verses. That's the paragraph. That's what we believe. So does that mean that we just basically skip Matthew 24 and say, ah, Interpretations aren't a big deal. Let's just forget it. No, we're not going to do that. We believe that that we are to exposit the Scriptures as they come to us on their own terms. 
that can keep us from riding hobby horses and just our favorite subjects all the time and dealing with the text as it, as it comes. And then I mentioned last week, too, that my hope is not that we don't just become curious about all the various viewpoints that are out there, but that we actually get our hearts in order, because that's what Jesus is after here for the disciples, to get our hearts in order about how we should now live, not just our heads convinced about a particular viewpoint. So last week I gave away what I think is the best way to understand most of this chapter, that Jesus' predictions here are not primarily about the end of the world or the second coming of Jesus, but the end of the earthly Jewish temple and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the fact that Jesus right now is enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so if our verses from last week were a symbolic sign of the beginning of labor, if you remember that phrase, if it were a symbolic sign of the beginning of labor, our verses today feature the labor pain strengthening in full force. So I think we should picture Jesus' predictions to his disciples in this chapter as a mom preparing for a new baby. Verses 3 to 14 have the followers of Jesus experiencing the beginning of labor pains and the hints of the end of an age. Our verses today, 15 to 28, is the culmination point of an age ending through pain and blood and the birth of a new age dawning with life, joy, and new creation. I, obviously, have never gone through labor. That should be obvious. But the image, the words, abomination of desolation sound about right. That sounds like a pretty good image for the process of labor. And I think that's a kind of a picture of the way in which we can view th- this whole passage. So, to get to the verses, 15 and 16. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So notice those first four words. So when you see, Jesus is talking to his disciples who are right there in front of them. If you weren't here last week, we see that at the beginning of chapter 24. And I think he's telling them something that they themselves will see. Whatever the abomination of desolation is, it wouldn't be something that happened thousands of years later, but that it would happen to them. The first part of verse 16 specifically gives the location, Judea. But those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this event will take place in their particular lifetime and in their specific location. Charles Spurgeon understood this section of verses to be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, this portion of our Savior's words appears to relate solely to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is announcing the coming fulfillment in the short term of the prophecy of Daniel. It was Daniel that prophesied of a future abomination of desolation, which is why the end of verse 15 says, let the reader understand. I think Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase put this 
really well. Quote, if you've read Daniel, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's the words that he kind of put there. Instead of just let the reader understand, if you've read Daniel, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's the point that Jesus seems to be trying to make. So, an abomination is something detestable that incites horror. So, we're just going to get look at just the words. Forget the interpretation for a second, just the words. An abomination is something that is detestable, that incites horror. And a desolation is total ruin, devastation, destruction. Which is why it's also been translated things like a devastating pollution, desolating sacrilege, the abominable thing that layeth waste. So aside from any interpretation of what it is historically, we know from the word picture that whatever this is that Jesus predicts will happen is something that is sacrilegious, destructive, what his people must flee from without delay. And so there's all kinds of debate over what this phrase means. But again, before we get to that part, I think it's helpful to go before Daniel. It might help us in understanding what an abomination was in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7.25 The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it for it is an abomination to the Lord. So in God's eyes, an abomination is idolatry. Before an abomination is something people flee from when they see it, it's something that God Himself detests and hates. Ten Commandments. First couple. Jesus gets more specific about this particular abomination, more specific than he already has, located it in Judea, when he says that this abomination of desolation stands in the holy place. And so again, early on in the Old Testament story, we, we read about Solomon, King Solomon, the first builder of the temple for God's people Israel, that he also built abominations in the high places of Israel. 1 Kings 11, 7-8 Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, I'm not sure how you say that, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So Jesus is telling his followers that this abomination will occur in the holy place itself when blatant idolatry enters the temple and results in its destruction. I just found that interesting. Solomon, the builder of the first temple. You have the tabernacle, the tent early on. He builds the temple. He also erects false Images and gods in the high places. Abominations. So Daniel's idea of an abomination would be all rooted in this Old Testament understanding of false gods. So when Daniel describes a particular event of an abomination of desolation that is set up in the place of an offering in chapter 9.27 of Daniel, chapter 11.31 of Daniel, and 12.11 of Daniel, we have some sense of what he's talking about. 
Now, the hard part is going into Daniel and trying to figure all that out. (laughs) In all of those places, you get into all kinds of different things like weeks and times and half times and numbers of years and all kinds of different um, numerics. And rather than, yeah, you know what, actually, let's do this. Let's, let's read those verses really, really quickly. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's going to kind of sound like it's coming in the middle of nowhere, but it's going to take us way too long if we try to read the whole context of each of those verses. But I encourage you to spend time looking at those, because obviously, Jesus just said it's pretty key to understand Daniel. In 927, Gabriel is bringing Daniel an answer to his prayers when he's pleading with God. He goes into all this thing about 70 weeks. And then in verse 27, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It's a mouthful. All these big words that just slip off the tongue. 1131. Again, talking about kings of south and north. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So again, talking about a particular event. The very end of Daniel. Uh, 12.11, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So Daniel ends around this particular idea. Now, that's some of the background to just actually the whole Old Testament and also that specific spot in Daniel. But by Jesus' time, there are some in Israel that may have already thought that what what Daniel referred to had already happened. Because a couple hundred years before Jesus spoke these words, a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, who followed the ruler Alexander the Great, there's a history lesson, came into Jerusalem and defiled the temple by stopping the normal sacrificial rituals and replace the altar in the temple with an idolatrous offering to Zeus. So Antiochus Epiphanes comes into the temple, kind of shuts down the sacrificial stuff. All other kinds of things are happening um, around that time. Offers up an idolatrous sacrifice to the god Zeus, which likely included swine. So he's bringing in unclean animals to the temple, sacrificing them to this false god. One of the apocryphal books in the Old Testament, um, and when I say that, that of course opens up a whole different conversation, but the Maccabees, 1 Maccabees records this, which that would have been written before Matthew, but it helps give us a sense of what they were thinking about. And it says in Maccabees 154, now on the 15th day of Chislev, again, my pronunciation is horrible, I apologize, in the 145th year, They, speaking of this ruler, erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. So actually, you can Google 
First Maccabees 1 and read all about this and actually read all about that whole situation. I think it was around 167 or so, about 200 years, maybe a little bit less than Jesus' time. So, a sense in which Daniel prophesied it, it's fulfilled then. That is floating around. Maccabees saying, hey, this guy came in, offered a desolating sacrilege. Could that be the fulfillment of that? And so Jesus knows this, and yet he's saying that there was going to be another sense in which that event is still yet to come. And so partial fulfillments and complete fulfillment and complete fulfillments in biblical literature are normal. Kind of have like the short-term fulfillment and then another fulfillment. Again, this whole theme of an already and a not yet. Kind of this overlap happening. And so it's my understanding that the abomination of desolation that Jesus prophesies here is not a coming event in our future, but was a coming event in the disciples' future when in the late 60s the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire and the Jewish people, the temple, and the city were crushed in 70 by the Romans, by Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian. And again, my terminology. So, that's my understanding of what I think Jesus is talking about. And one of the reasons, one of the main biblical arguments for that is due to the parallel passage in Luke 21. It's due to this passage and all that follows. But it's also due to Luke 21 when Jesus is mentioning some of the exact same thing. Where Jesus explicitly identifies Rome as bringing desolation using some of the same exact warnings found in Matthew 24, Luke 21, 20 to 24. Jesus speaking after chapter 21, talking to the disciples, talking about the days when no stone will be left unturned. Later on, In verse 20, when you see, there's a similar word, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that part's a little new, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so this whole picture of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies is actually fulfilled in in the late 60s. The Jewish turned Roman historian Josephus, and that's actually important to understand. He was a Jew, but he actually ended up surrendering and becoming a Roman. So, some bias. But Josephus records the events from that time in graphic detail. At the end of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Josephus writes this, And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious, seditious meaning seditious against Rome, the fleeing of of those people, into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings round about it, brought their ensigns to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate. And there did they offer sacrifices to them. And there did they make Titus imperator with the greatest acclamations of joy. So this whole picture of, 
of Rome coming in, the burning of the holy house, them bringing in all of their all of their emblems and pictures and sacrifices with great joy. The Romans actually engaged in the idolatry of emperor worship, the image of which uh, of which the images of the emperor would have been upon some of their standards. So it's quite fitting that this may be what Jesus is describing. Verses 16 to 18. Let's go back to, go back to Matthew. Let the one who is on the house step, let the one who is on the house top not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And the last, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter and in Sabbath. If we stick with 16, 17, and 18, I don't think that requires a ton of exposition. It's clear. Jesus is calling the people of Judea to run when they see this happening. Don't wait. Don't pack your bags. Move fast. Get out of there. The end of the temple has arrived, and it sounds a lot like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's even flame. Don't be like Lot's family needing to be grabbed by angels to get out. Just run. He's telling them, don't turn back. Get out when you see this. Verses 19 and 21, 19 through 21. I already read a few of those. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and will never be. And so these verses, Jesus is emphasizing this utter devastation that's going to occur. To be a nursing mom, having to help a little baby during this time period would be sickening to think of. As the Romans were merciless, they burned many people alive in their homes that you read about in Josephus. And even more unimaginable, as in other sieges of by pagan armies in Israel's past, Josephus recorded that women even at times ate their children due to the famine that was there in the land. And then for this to happen in winter would only increase the severity of the trauma and it would have made it more difficult to get out. And so Jesus is heaping up warnings so that they feel the intensity around their necks. This is going to be a horrific time. 20 and 21, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then, so he's not about the abomination of desolation, then he's saying, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and will never be. The word for great comes from the Greek word attached to mega. So mega tribulation. Jesus has already mentioned tribulation earlier in the passage. Talks about tribulation and distress. But here he's emphasizing that this is going to come in an even greater magnitude. They would experience great tribulation such that it never occurred before. Josephus said that 1.1 million were killed in Jerusalem and about another 100,000 were enslaved. So that's the scale that we're talking about here during the Jewish war. And I've got to be honest, when I read that, I thought, hmm, why did Jesus say that? Why did he say that and then that it would never happen like that again? Let 
Last week happened to be Holocaust Remembrance Day. And with the horrors of Auschwitz and consecration camps being still to come, why would Jesus say something like that would never happen again? And as I was doing just some research, I I found it helpful because that's a question that I had. D.A. Carson helped me. He said, there have been greater numbers of deaths Six million in the Nazi death camps, mostly Jews, and an estimated 20 million under Stalin, but never so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. So don't just think total numbers or nuclear bombs. You can, you can start getting stacks of bodies and numbers. Think per capita and percentages. And maybe most important, think of the end of the Jewish religion as they knew it. The judgment of God, the establishment of a new age with Jesus as Messiah, prophet, priest, king, sacrifice, temple, all of that happening then. So this great tribulation as something in the past that has happened then would be my understanding. And that's where there's plenty of disagreement. Josephus also spoke of how Romans overtook the walls and placed their their symbols upon the towers of the city, and the descriptions are really bad, and I'm not going to read them all. I will just say that like when they, when they came in there and they just started to slay everybody without mercy, burning houses, they found enti- this is a quote, they found in them entire families of dead men, upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is such as died by the famine. Then they stood in a horror at this sight, the Romans, and went out without touching anything. But although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, yet they had not the same for those that were still alive. They ran every one of them through whom they met, obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies, made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. So a horrible sight. Great tribulation. Verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So here we find the sovereign mercy of God in the midst of horrific judgment from God. And interesting, isn't it, that in the middle of an already controversial passage on the end times, Jesus decides to throw in election. He's not trying to be controversial. He does it because he loves his people. And he loved them before they were ever born. God takes care of the people he has chosen from all eternity. He shows us that even in judgment, there will be mercy. God always keeps his people. And for the sake of his people, he holds back his fury. Even unbelievers are kept safe temporarily due to the presence of God's people in an area. So never underestimate the significance and the value of the church to the world. We should never do that. They're God's people. We are God's people. Then we get back to another theme of this whole chapter, deception, verses 23 to 26. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. 
Many false messiahs, many false prophets were active during this time. Pretenders were all over the place. As we talked about last week, we saw this through the later writings of the New Testament. False teachers were everywhere. Letters were written to confront that common problem. And Jesus tells us here that they will even do signs and wonders. And so Jesus is even telling his people he wants them to know that doing miracles can be from the hand of Satan, not just from the hand of God. The deception is so believable that even if possible, the elect would be deceived. And imagine your body that you've been wracked in pain with gets healed and it's attached to a person whose message is false. That's going to be hard to shake. Let's just be honest. You've been healed by this. You've seen the sign. You've seen this wonder. It's still false. An angel, like Paul says, can come and preach, can show up in your room. An angel give you a different message. Don't believe it. It's from hell. And so, anything other than Jesus as King, as Jesus as Messiah, is a lie. And Jesus is warning His people. He's saying this, I'm telling you this beforehand. He's doing it because He loves them. One translation puts verse 25, There, I have forewarned you. This is a forewarning. Verse 27. So if they say to you, look, uh, no, 27, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. There is only one Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Jesus himself and his coming to earth will be crystal clear. It will not be a secret. It will not be a piece of new knowledge that you need to get from somebody. It's public. It's visible. It's like lightning, an unmistakable flash in the sky that comes out of nowhere that everybody can see. Jesus is the Son of Man and His second coming, the word parousia, will be seen by all. That's the word that's used here. Don't believe anything less. Don't just go somewhere to find it. When the Son of Man comes, you're going to see it. Verse 28, again an ugly image of corpses attracting vultures. We've already seen from Josephus how high the bodies piled up during the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know when Jesus comes again at the end of history that He comes with judgment and not the kind that is merely physical death but the second death, eternal punishment. So, my understanding is that this is talking about a past event. That Jesus was talking to His people there to warn them. So why is that important for us? What do we do with all this? If most of what we've been reading has to do with something that already happened, why do we care? And I think that's because even if the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation has already occurred, we still are called to flee from idolatry, to guard against deception, and that tribulation will continue. That's mentioned everywhere else in the New Testament. All that we need to do is to shape our lives and build our identity on Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And so one of the ways we do this is by reminding ourselves who we are. 
the people of Israel knew who they were. At least they did in their heads. The elect, the chosen ones, the ones chosen by God out of all the peoples from the earth, Israel. But their election was based not upon them. They were a small people, but upon God. He just loved them. That's why. And that was their identity. And we learn in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile, the breaking down of the wall and the God calling of people from every nation as His people. And that when we reduce election to just debate and to just controversy and not actually our identity, actually who we are, it's actually to strip it of its power and just to treat it like philosophy, like a little idea floating out there. All over the place, the apostles appealed to believers to see themselves as the chosen ones of God. Where election wasn't about ethnicity, election was about being in the chosen one, Jesus Christ. And they used that reality, the fact that they were God's people, to encourage them. Keep going through suffering, keep enduring, because you're God's people. He loved you, He picked you. And so if you think salvation is ultimately dependent upon you, not only have you misunderstood the gospel, you may not be paying enough attention to election. We, as Christians, are the chosen of God. So to make this practical, you may not know what it feels like to be picked in life. You know the classic thing of, you know, you were standing there in, um, at school, you're the last one picked, you're not picked. That is not fun. To be picked is a great thing. But a believer, you may have never been picked by anybody. You may be single. You may have been rejected. You may have never been picked. But if you know Jesus, you were picked before the beginning of time. That's encouraging. That is extremely encouraging. That's where your identity should be. Not in something that happened in the past in, in your own life of not being picked. As a believer in Christ... He loved you. He chose you. And so election is meant to remind you of how much you're loved no matter what is happening to you in your life or what you've done in your life. God's choice isn't a response to your choice. We are justified by faith in Jesus, but we are not chosen by faith in Jesus. We are chosen from the beginning of time in Jesus. That's what Ephesians 1 says. Christians are not chosen based on anything they have done, good or bad, but solely due to God's grace and mercy. His choice is not based on your performance. You don't have to be a good basketball player, a good marriage prospect. The choice is not earned. He chooses because that's his character, not because of yours. And in that passage that we read this morning, Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians to do that. They, in chapter 1, were being told the day of the Lord has already come. There were deceivers in their midst, what Jesus is warning them against. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is trying to encourage them, you're chosen. Endure. Stand firm. So he's not using it as a controversial weapon to boggle their minds. He's actually using it to encourage them. And so 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-17 we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That can also be translated, not just first fruits, 
but that God chose you from the beginning. You'll notice that at the bottom. Some manuscripts chose you from the beginning with a footnote. God chose you as the first fruits or from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and the God of our Father who loved us Give us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So in that passage, he's encouraging them that you don't get chosen because you endure. You endure because you were chosen. That it's fuel to keep you going, to comfort you, to give you hope. And so Jesus' words in Matthew 24 remind us how to use our election to keep us from present deception. And so the last thing, I think, well, not the last thing, the last thing I'm going to talk about, that I think that we can draw from Jesus' words about a past event is that judgment is coming. There's a judgment coming that is greater than Rome in Jerusalem in AD 70. It's the day that every single person, every single nation, including ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Nazi Germany, North Korea, Syria, Russia, America, every nation, every person in that nation will face the day of the Lord. Judgment is coming. The day when Jesus is seen in all His glory as the judge of all of history. He's the Son of Man who has all authority. And so cultural appropriations of Jesus, like Jesus is just meek and mild, Jesus is my homeboy, and things of that nature don't fully communicate all that Jesus is. He's the judge. People nowadays love quoting Jesus saying, don't judge, don't judge other people. They see that as that's a great universal truth. Don't do that. But they're not recognizing that the universal truth is that the one who said that is the one who's going to judge everybody. He is the one who pronounces judgment upon Israel and the destruction of the temple. And he is the one who claims the divine authority of future judgment. And that's what we're going to be talking about all through up to through verse 25. And says that he is going to appear at the end of history, at the end of Matthew 25, and send some to eternal punishment and some to eternal life. And so the bad news is that for those who don't know Jesus as Savior will only know Jesus as judge. The bad news that if you don't know Jesus, eschatology has started now. God's wrath is already giving you over to more and more sin that you enjoy in order to face the final judgment that you deserve. But, you don't have to stay there if that's you. The Father loves the world, sent Jesus to take every ounce of judgment for every kind of sin. And so, you are not better at sinning than Jesus is at saving. Grace is always more promiscuous than your sin. Always. So turn from your sin. Turn from your idolatry. Flee from the coming judgment. 
and go straight into the arms of Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus, the good news is that eschatology has started now. The verdict of the future has been set over you in the present, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your sins. Find your identity in that. Don't let circumstances in the world, craziness in the world, sadness in your life, all of these other things, don't let those define you. Don't let worry about your future define you. Jesus is for you. He's never against you. He loves you. He likes you. He invites you every single week to find your identity in Him. That's why we do communion. That our identity is in Christ. We are the forgiven ones. We are the loved ones. We are the chosen ones. We can endure. We can do this again and again because the next week may be hard. We need to be reminded again. He wants us to take that truth inside of us to ingest it. Using material elements to say we need this in us. He wants us to take it inside of us and He gives it to us with a promise attached to it that He will eat the bread and drink the wine in a party like the world has never seen at the end of the age when all the curse is gone. So we do this now in the face of the world to say this is what the world's about. This is what history is about. This is what my life is about. This will happen. Everything else may be happening in our world. But that's what's coming. So, let's celebrate that. Let's believe that as we do communion.